Matthew chapter 5, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. As we stand to read together in unison. All right, Matthew 5. Are we ready? Let's read Matthew 5, verses 1 to 5, begin. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. Let's pray right there. Father, there's a lot to what we're going to talk about this morning. It'll be the exact opposite of what we want to be like. We love it when people treat us right, but we find it not in us how to treat others. So teach us about meekness this morning. God, I need your help. I need to be able to say what you would say if you were here. But just as important, I need everyone in this room to hear as if it was you speaking. And that we would sit at your feet and we would consider every word. Because this is life or death. This is what it is to live in the kingdom of God. And there are people that are not going to be even in the kingdom. They've never cared one day about their soul, and yet you do. So God, I pray that they would feel that pull. They would know the pricking of the Holy Spirit that they need to be born again. And every Christian would sense the pull of the Holy Spirit to live a different way, to live a higher way, to live like Jesus. And I pray you bless as we open your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, <clears throat> Jesus, as I started this last week, Jesus has been going around through villages and towns, not the big cities yet, that's down in Jerusalem, but he's going around the region we call Galilee, and he is preaching about the kingdom. If you will go to Mark chapter 1, you're in Matthew, go to Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. After that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Go to Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 8, verse 1. Luke, chapter 8, and verse 1. It came to pass afterwards that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. So we started off at the beginning with nobody. He started to gather people around him. He got twelve disciples. He kept preaching about something called the kingdom and excited everybody. It drew crowds out of the cities from their busy schedules, from their farms and from their families. They were intensely interested in this concept of the kingdom because the entire Old Testament talked about two things that were supposed to happen. One was that a prophet would come who would bring in the kingdom. A prophet like unto Moses, but Moses wrote 
um, uh, a, the law, and it was it was engraved in stone. But a prophet was coming who would write grace into the hearts of the followers. And there was something that this person, this Messiah, would bring, and that was called the kingdom. A perfect kingdom, David's kingdom, that would continue forever. And so here is this, this simple man who looked so plain, so unattractive, so uninteresting, and yet out of his mouth came such amazing words. And from his very life, he would go and he would interrupt the problem or the disaster of a leper or a, a man a born blind or somebody who was crippled, and he would heal them. And they said, the kingdom's here. The kingdom is here. Now, why is the kingdom of God so important? I said some of this stuff last week, but it is bears repeating, and so put up with me. God's kingdom is the main thing. We read that verse there in Matthew chapter 6, and it says, Seek ye third the kingdom of God. Is that what it says? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's the main thing to worry about. I don't care what other problems you've got. Make sure, first of all, you're in the kingdom of God. And secondly, live like you're in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. God's kingdom is the main thing to worry about every day. Secondly, there are different kingdoms. Go to Ephesians chapter 6 now. Ephesians chapter 6. There are kingdoms. Some of them are not physical. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 tells us, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, physical enemies, physical people. We don't wrestle against them, but we wrestle against, what's that next word? A principality is an area of domain, of, of authority. And we wrestle against domains and kingdoms and principalities keep going against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. And we think, well, oh, that's our politicians. No, no, no. There's a spirit behind the politicians. So you want to blame, and I, I have every reason to blame Veradker and Simon Harris and all this stuff for all the wicked decisions that they have brought in to Ireland, but there's a spirit behind them. And I can never fight Varadkar, except at the ballot box, but I can fight the spirit behind him. We wrestle against the rulers of the darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So not all kingdoms are physical. Go to Romans chapter 8, back to the left. Romans chapter 8 and verse 38. Romans eight thirty-eight. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor, here's that word again, entire dominions, principalities, nor powers, nor things that are present, nor even things you have to face in the future, things to come, nor height, think of Goliath, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God does not promise that you're not going to face the enemy. But what does he promise? They won't win. They won't win. So sometimes there are, there are different kingdoms at play around our life and, and in our, in our life. And we gotta pick the one we gotta focus on and worry about. Third, your understanding of the kingdom of God. Now, the Jews want the kingdom of heaven. 
And most people want all the, the, the wealth and prosperity of the kingdom of heaven. And God, Jesus never promised his disciples prosperity. You know what he promised? Trials and tribulations. He promised a sword coming against them, persecution. He promised them suffering, sorrow. So your understanding of the kingdom of God is going to determine your eternity. If you're living for a utopia, a perfect world, if you're living for a, a, a better tomorrow, you're going to be sorely disappointed. But if you live for the kingdom of God, nothing will ruin your day. How you see others will, deter, will, will be based on how you see life. And if you see them as your enemy, if you see them as the problem, if you see them as the reason for every one of your hurts or your, your past, you forget that you don't live here now if you're saved. You live in the kingdom of God. You may be a stranger and a pilgrim here, but that's not, this is not your home. Amen. Our home is in the future. Now, hallelujah. The kingdom of God is the center point of your Bible. From start to finish, everything you read in your Bible, every conflict, every battle is over who's going to rule. Now, what is the kingdom of God? It's a kingdom. It has laws. It has citizenship. By the way, not everybody's in the kingdom. You have to be born into that kingdom, by the way. Now, I got naturalized into the Irish kingdom. But I was not born Irish, amen? I was born Texas, Texan. So, but I was born again and I got citizenship in the kingdom of God. It has citizenship. This kingdom has a king, it has subjects, and it has great benefits. Do you know the kingdom of God is where people are alive forevermore? This people, the kingdom of God is filled with people who enjoy life. They enjoy every moment now. You got people who live the grind and they have no joy and they go through all the, the, the struggles and everything and they end up working at McDonald's. There's nothing wrong with that. And they live, they, they, they go day after day, week after week, month after month, they go through the same thing and there's nothing to life. But if you're in the kingdom of God, that is just passing through. That is just what I have to go through right now because I'm alive forevermore. And this is just a little bit of a detour until I reach my home, which is heaven. It is a place where we're free from the dominion of sin and Satan and the curse of ourself. I experience sin's pull and so do you. I know the feel of temptation. I know the pressure of satanic attack. But none of those things have dominion over me anymore. I'm a born-again child of God. I'm not a child of the devil like I used to be. Before I was saved, I thought I was my own man. And but the Bible, and the Bible describes it as you are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. I'm free from that. I now get to do the desires of my heavenly father. I'm in a new kingdom. I I read this, it was a crazy thought, but Jesus Christ never saved a soul whom he did not govern. Wow. See, salvation is not a ticket you buy and you put in your back pocket and then just go on your, on your life until you die. Doesn't work that way. Salvation is, he's Lord. Not only is it a kingdom, it's not of this world, Jesus said in John chapter 18, my kingdom is not of this world. Speaking to Pilate. 
It's God's kingdom. It's not physical or visible. Uh, go back to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Luke 17, 20 and 21. <clears throat> and when it was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should appear, because that's all he was talking about, mainly... He answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. You won't see it happen. And neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So it's not physical or visible. It's a mystery. Now, it's not like a mystery that is just, well, it'll always be a mystery. No, it's a mystery to solve. That's why Jesus gave things and he, called, he taught in parables so that people go, What do you mean by that? And you will learn what the meaning of the things are so that you could understand another kingdom. In simple words, the kingdom of God is God ruling your heart. As you yield to him, and he overrules everything else. So because you're saved, you may encounter a hiccup in life, a disaster. You may encounter life-changing event. But that doesn't define you, amen? You may fail, you may fall, sin may take uh, a hold of you and, 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 and mess with your life for a little bit. But that has no dominion over you anymore. God does. Amen. That's what comes. You think that a Christian can sin and still go to heaven? Yes. Because my, my salvation is not based on my goodness. My salvation, getting in the kingdom of God, is based upon Christ's goodness. And when he died for me, he made it possible for me still to mess up. And that doesn't define me anymore. I'm in a new kingdom. And we desperately need to seek it. That's why he said, seek ye first that kingdom. Now, uh, what are the Beatitudes? We come to Matthew chapter 5. Let's go ahead and get back there. Matthew chapter 5. They are eight initial beginning truths about the kingdom of God. They're out of this world. They're not what you would expect when you pick up a book at school. They don't come from a culture. You don't find them in a science book. You won't find them in, in a religion, even though religions try to teach it. They're out of this world. These Beatitudes are the opening of our eyes to what it's like in the kingdom of God. And Jesus devotes three chapters, five, six, and seven, to describing what's it like living in the kingdom of God. And he is talking about attitudes. When we talk about blessed are, and he talks about the poor in spirit, they that mourn, they that are meek. He's talking about an attitude here. There are instructions about how we live now, not how we're going to live in heaven. You think it's going to be great living in heaven? You think it's going to be awesome when Jesus is back on earth one day? Amen. But that's no good for me today unless I've got a way to live now. And that's what these are written for. It's for my life now. And when you want to know, what, what is the word beatitude? It's an old Latin word which simply means blessing or benefit happiness and beauty. So when he's teaching these beatitudes, he's showing you something awesome. The opposite of a beatitude directly is misery. And the problem is most Christians look like they're in this kingdom instead of that one. <laughs> so let's try to focus on something that changes our whole demeanor. They are not for everyone, though. They're not for everyone. They're not written to the company manager who's too busy to come to church. Not written to the successful football coach who puts 
uh, uh, everything on Sunday for the, for the team instead of for God. It's not for the ambitious politician who only wants to get elected. It's written to those who will gather at the feet of Jesus. Those are the only ones that are going to enjoy what I preached this morning and what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. They are not a way to become holy. They are written to people who have been born again, who want to live holy. Do you understand? Now, they're not easy to live by either. Don't get the idea that, okay, well, I'll just be meek. Are you kidding? How few people actually love preaching and love church and would would kill every obstacle to get to church early? How many people do that? How many people make sure that they read their Bible every day? How many people yearn to spend some time with Jesus in prayer? It's almost non-existent. So don't tell me this is easy. You know, the devil won't let you live this way. He will not let you. You're going to have to fight him. You're going to have to wrestle with everything against you so that you live this way. And I hope to make you where you want to. Now, these are eight opposites of the Christian life than what we want the Christian life to be. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's saying, blessed are those who are glad to be empty. When he says, blessed are they that mourn, he says, it's okay to be sad sometimes. Oh, but I, I, I can't, I can't let anybody see that I'm, I'm having a bad day. You got those who want everybody to know they're having a bad day, but those aren't too often. Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn, blessed are they meek. That means, hey, it's okay to take, as a matter of fact, it's important to take last place because when you take last place in God's kingdom, you win. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst. Well, that means keep yourself hungry for good things. Don't ever let the devil or the world swap out good and holy for the pleasures of sin that are only for a season. Most churches, you know what most churches are? They're filled with people who come to hear what they expect to hear. And the churches are, 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 are led by pastors and ministerettes and people who will say what the people are expecting them to say. That's not church, folks. Because the gospel never tells us what we want to hear. And the Bible rubs against our flesh. So when it says, be always be hungry for good, which is what we're going to learn about next week, we're going to find out, I haven't been hungry for good in a long time. Show mercy and compassion and kindness a lot. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. You know, you'd hate it when somebody took a little uh, boy or a little girl and you had a neighbor who just was cantankerous, who was mean, who was nasty, who was ugly, and your little girl is getting ready and she's nine years old and she's getting ready to, to head out, get in the car to go to, uh, uh, go to school or whatever, and your neighbor come out and says, you're ugly. And you beat him around the block. You'd call my child something that would, would hurt her or defile her thought of herself. Amen. You know, you need to keep the devil from convincing you you're ugly. You're no good if you're saved. Don't you, don't you let the world make it so that your heart is defiled and you just crawl from disaster after disaster. These are revolutionary. These are the important things to conquer. Number seven, he says, blessed are the, those that are peacemakers. Seek to make peace, not war. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. (laughs) The hardest of them all rejoice at all your persecutions. Now, last week, 
We're talking about blessed are the poor in spirit. We're talking about blessed are they that mourn. This week, I want. I tried to do two, but there's just no way. We're going to just work on one this, this morning. We're going to look at blessed are the meek, where we learn to take last place so that we can win first. Let's review. When In Matthew chapter 5, look there. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He uses that word blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow, you're poor. You have nothing spiritually. You have nothing uh, um, of success before God. You have nothing to show for God. Well, God says, guess what? You get the whole kingdom of heaven. Future kingdom. Blessed are they that mourn. You say, I feel so defeated. I am defeated. I feel defeated. I, I, I live in a disaster. Jesus said, it's great. Amen. Blessed are you that mourn because you're going to be comforted. It's the people that just always put on the show and they just laugh and they have, they, they never are honest or real that will miss everything. Number five, blessed now are the meek for they're going to inherit the earth. What a crazy thought. Let's talk about the meaning of the word blessed. Usually it, it we, we, we learn, we understand that it describes somebody who is happy, but it means more than just being happy. It means being fortunate. Fortunate are you when you're poor in spirit. Fortunate are you that you're mourning. It'd be great to have a church where we have great joy and there's preaching and everybody, amen, and, and then the Bible cuts us and we all mourn. Blessed, fortunate are those that actually have the ability to say, oops, wow, I'm sorry. Blessed are those, so it's it, uh, blessed means fortunate, you're well off, you're well to do. Now the world may not think so. You have been helped or encouraged. You've become rich and thriving, successful in the kingdom of God. Yet to the world, you look like a loser. Pay close attention to all of these who Jesus is calling blessed. Now, I would say, if you just got a new car, I says, wow, God just blessed you. If I say you just got married, if I say you're about to have a baby, Weston, you are blessed. Amen? You see, Jesus... As, as much as those are blessed, and Jesus says the craziest people are blessed. Those who are failures. Who at the end of their life can't point to anything that they ever did that was any good. Amen. Don't you ever say, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be able to show all the stuff I did for God. I mean, you ought to do something for God. You ought to live for God as a living sacrifice. But when it all adds up, it's a loss. Blessed are the failures in the kingdom of God. Because my God doesn't need my success. God just needs me. Blessed are those who are grief-stricken. Blessed are those who are last-place people. You watch somebody and you let you find a hundred people and they all go into a race and there's somebody back there and they're just they're tripping, they're falling, and they come in last place. It's hard to clap for them except, oh, let's encourage them. <laughs> God says, you know, when you come in last place in my kingdom... You win. When you're hungry and you're thirsty and you can't seem to find satisfaction in this world, that's a good thing. You ever gone day after day at work, at home, at school, and you feel like it's just dry? Jesus said, yay. (laughs) Because you need a hunger for a different kingdom. You need a hunger for time with Jesus. Bless, he says, People who are kind are blessed. People who are clean 
The world doesn't give any honor to clean people. Boy, they give honor to people who just, I mean, that, there's wicked people in Hollywood. Why we trust them to show us anything good? Blessed are clean, peace, blessed are the peacemakers. These are people who Jesus says they're well off. So let's talk about one of them this morning. Just blessed are the meek. That don't make no sense. I just added that. So, all right. Now, blessed are the meek. <clears throat> when we talk about meekness, in simple words, it means fortunate are the gentle. Blessed are the gentle. Well off are those who are gentle. The proper definition is a person who is mild of temper, gentle, and teachable. Somebody put it this way. Meekness is an attitude of humble, submissive, and expectant trust in God while under pressure. And a loving, patient, and gentle attitude toward others while being attacked. Can I read that again? Meekness is an attitude of humble, submissive, and expectant trust in God while under pressure. And a loving, patient, and gentle attitude towards others while being attacked. I did not like that definition. I'm going to blow you away. If you ever attempt to, to live meekly, you will seem like a pushover. You'll seem like a doormat even though you're not. Most people think meekness is an attitude that will allow others to run over you. Are you ready? It kind of (laughs) is. What? Yep. Meekness allows others to get ahead of you, to be first, to get all the credit, even though you did most of the work. Ow. That's meekness. Not that you're inferior or that your efforts are not as good as someone else's, but you live according to a different kingdom, the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world says, I have to get ahead. I need everybody to know I'm ahead. I need everybody to know how good I am. I need everybody to see my greatness. I need them to applaud me. That's what the world says. But if you're in the kingdom of God, and if you are meek, you will believe God honors meekness more than being pushy, more than being forceful, more than being argumentative and aggressive like most businesses are run today. And like most marriages operate today. Meekness allows others to take advantage of you even though you could put them in their place. Meekness says nothing sometimes. Can I repeat that? Meekness says nothing sometimes, even though you are right (laughs) and others are wrong. Meekness steps down from positions of greatness and applause to minister to others, even though it costs you everything. You will end up letting someone else win for the moment and trust trust God to make it all work out for good in the end. Because according to Jesus here, meekness means you do win in the end. He says you will inherit how much? How big is the earth? If I 
if I get this thing right, I'm already a winner. Amen? Even if I don't win the argument, even if I don't win the fight, even if I don't get the, the promotion, even if I don't succeed in life, I will win. Amen? To the world, you look like a last, you look like last place, but to God, you're blessed. Meek people will look like a bunch of losers. If you're a real born-again Christian, the world will laugh at you, mock you, and reject you because you're a loser. That's what we look like. Instead of buying the new car, we give money to missionaries. Yeah. Instead of sleeping in on a Sunday, we get up early. And we get to church. And we bring our kids. We drag our kids. We uh, we drag the wife. We Whatever we do. Instead of... Instead of all the things that the world says is important, we put God first and we end up with an old beat-up car that barely gets out of the driveway. We end up with a, with a house that's falling down. We end up with clothes that we've worn for the last 30 years. And yet we're investing in a kingdom we can't see knowing that we will win in the end. Amen. Don't you ever be ashamed of the fact that somebody else is getting ahead of you, somebody else is doing better than you, somebody else is succeeding and you're failing. Because if you're living in the kingdom of God, you cannot fail. You've already won. Meekness is strength under control. It is strength restrained. Meekness is power that is not used. It is anger that is not Expressed. Ooh. Meekness is points that are not made in an argument. Oh, if I could make my point. Meekness is words that are not said. Meekness chooses to be gentle when you could be fierce, when you could be hurtful. I believe a nation should have great power and authority and the ability to defend itself but should not use it unless absolutely necessary. A nation should be meek, and yet that does not mean that they don't have an army. Do you understand what I'm saying? And we've got this wicked, stupid, twisted idea that boys growing up need to be effeminate so that they don't hurt people. No. Boys need to be taught how to be men, how to lift serious weight, how to be able to climb super high trees, how to handle Heavy burdens, but also restrain it. Amen. Because meekness does not tell you, oh, make sure you sit in front of the couch and gain 400 pounds so that you can't get up and and you can't even raise your voice. Meekness is strength under control. So it is this concept. Let me take you to something. Go to Psalm 1835. Psalm 1835. How strong is God? How do you comprehend an infinite power? (laughs) I have seen what the power of the splitting of atoms can do. That's an atom bomb. I have seen what the power of merging, fusing atoms can do. That's a hydrogen bomb. But I have never been able to comprehend the power of Almighty God. Now watch how 
David talks about Almighty God. Psalm 18, in verse 35, Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy right hand hath holden me up, and thy gentleness hath made me great. Is God meek toward us? It is power restrained. Galatians 5. No, no, I'll I'll give that to you again in a later bit. (laughs) Do you ever think about how God even talks to us? Let's go to 1 Kings. 1 Kings. Chapter 19. 1 Kings 19. Hmm. 1 Kings 19, just verse 11, Elijah has pretty well collapsed emotionally. He's gotten up to the cave up in Mount Sinai. He's up there. He's discouraged. And he, he wants to hear from God. Okay, well, watch. Verse 11, 1911. God said, go forth and stand upon the mount before me, before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and a strong wind... <laughs> Split the mountains, I mean wind ripping the mountain apart, rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. And what do you think Elijah went, wow. But the Lord was not in the wind. Oops. And after the wind, <laughs> there was an earthquake. I mean the wind was more fierce than an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. The Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, what was there? When the Lord spoke, what did he do? Spoke very restrained. Almighty God spoke with a very quiet voice. That's meekness. Thank God you're meek towards me. (laughs) Because I wouldn't be able to handle it if he spoke with all of his force. Meekness, therefore, is strength under control. As a matter of fact, let me help you define it as better. It is strength under God's control. It is strength under God's control. Our modern world is afraid of masculinity. They're afraid of manhood because all they see are unsaved men who are nothing but animals. But that's not the problem with masculinity because God wants men to be men who are strong and manly and could get angry and could do impossible things, but they do what God wants done. They respond like Jesus did. So meekness is gentleness and strength perfectly balanced in the Christian's heart. Obeying the commands of Scripture, under the constraints of the Holy Spirit, and experiencing the blessings of God. The world will call you crazy if you try to live this way. The world will just look at you and think, you are insane. But it'll open up all the future blessings of the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's called the millennium, where you're going to go, why didn't I live more for Jesus? Now, examples. I give you one, but I want to show you something. Go to Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron are very 
rude towards Moses. You know, it's not right to be rude. If I, if I hurt you, can you just not be rude to me, okay? <laughs> Two wrongs don't make a right. And, and we, this, it's, it's not necessary to fight fire with fire. But Miriam and Aaron think they gotta take Moses on. They accuse him of being, they accuse him of being wrong in his marriage choice and says, you married an Ethiopian woman. But God interrupts that conversation there in chapter 12 verse 1 and Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married for he had married an Ethiopian woman what and they said hath the Lord in, and they said this to Moses hath the Lord indeed spoken only by you Moses have you not spoken also by us and the last five words are scary and the Lord heard it and believe me the Lord hears us when we demean and attack one another. Verse 3, look at the parentheses. God writes this in. He says, Now the man Moses was very weak. Is that what it says? He crumbled under Miriam's attack. No. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which are upon the face of the earth. Verse 4, And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out ye three into the tabernacle of the congregation. And they all three came out, and the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud, stood in the door of the tabernacle, called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth, and he said, Hear now my words. And it goes on and on and on. Verse 9, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed, and the Lord, and the cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow, her flesh is about to start falling off. Behold, she was leprous. Wow. Now, who did the fighting there? You know what Moses did? He zipped the lip. He took it. He took it on the cheek. Miriam starts to attack him, and he just sat there. And as a meek man, Moses could have wiped the floor with her. Amen? but he left it to God. And did God come through? Sure did. Moses is a great example of somebody who's meek when normally our response, normally my response is to fight back. Another example would be David. He's in a cave finding himself. Saul, his, his mortal enemy, comes into the cave alone. It's Prime Pickens, he could kill him right there and sneak out the back. Nobody would know. But he refused out of a meek respect for that's God's business. If he's going to be in trouble, he's going to be in trouble with God, not with me. And he, he waited for Saul to go out and then he came out and he says, Saul, I want you to know I could have killed you, but I will not do that. Wow, meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. How about Job as he is pummeled and pounded verbally by his three friends for weeks on end. All they did was say, something wrong with you. And I tell you what, if Job had any strength, he would have in a one punch knocked all three of them out of the ring. I mean, the he, he, only thing he can say out of the weakness of his flesh was miserable comforters are y'all. You know what he is? He 
He sits down and he says, well, I cannot fight you. And he couldn't. How about Stephen? As all his enemies gather around him and pick up stones and they call him everything under the sun and they begin to pound him with those stones. You know what Stephen does? He stands and then he falls and then he lifts up his eyes and his hands to heaven. He says, Father, don't hold this to their charge. Wow. You know what I'd be saying? God, kill him! <laughs> wow. How about the Apostle Paul as he's carried from prison to prison he is stoned and he is maligned and mocked even by other jealous Christians. There were there was a group of other pastors and Christians that says, Paul's not really who he, sh- he claims to be. He's not even an apostle. He's, he's, uh, he's getting us in trouble. And Paul says, I'm just glad the gospel is preached. Meekness. And then how about Jesus? Go to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 29. Take my yoke, Jesus says, and learn of me. I wonder what I need to learn. Oh, I need to learn all of the Bible, history, and all the Bible, doctrine. No, guess what he says. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And then you shall find rest unto your souls. Matthew 21 Matthew 21, verse 5. What were the Jews, what kind of a king were the Jews expecting to come in to Jerusalem if he was the Messiah? What type of a entrance would the Messiah surely have? He would be on a white stallion surrounded by an army of soldiers who were ready to die and, and, and were fierce and they were unstoppable, right? And yet God says these things in Jesus. It's quoted about in Matthew 21, 5. Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek and sitting upon a donkey. (laughs) You know how fast a donkey can run? Six miles an hour. And he's on, even not even on a grown donkey. He's He's on a colt. The foal of an ass. The greatest example of meekness is next to Moses is Jesus Christ. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 10. Now I, Paul, myself beseech you, I beg you by the mercy, I'm sorry, by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I beg you by the same meekness and gentleness that Christ has. And don't you know Jesus literally strength under control? When a man hit him, what was he capable of doing back? John 18, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto the men who gathered there at the garden of Gethsemane to capture him. He said, whom seek ye? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus saith unto him, I am he. Let it be known to everybody in Judas also betrayed him, stood with him, and as soon as they, as he had said, I am he, they fell backward. What is he demonstrating? You're dealing with a strong man here, boys, and you don't realize how I'm holding everything back because I'm meek. 
Now, so what does meekness do for us? You've seen some of the things here, but the first thing it is, it does not make you weak. It doesn't make you timid or shy. Oh, I'm shy. It doesn't make you a coward. It actually allows God to be strong for you because he is almighty. I'd much rather God fix the problem than me try to. Amen? God encourages the meek. Go to Psalm. We'll spend some, a little bit of time in Psalms here. God actually encourages somebody who zips the lip, who does not fight, who does not push, who does not argue, who does not demand. Psalm 149. Did I say, um, uh, that's the next verse. Psalm 147. We'll get to Psalm 149 next. Psalm 147 and verse 6. The Lord lifteth up the and casteth the wicked down to the ground. That's a good promise. You know, if I'm meek, God will lift me up and encourage me. But if I'm angry, if I'm fierce, if I'm fighting, what does the Bible say? He resists me. God would give the grace unto the humble, but he what does what to the proud? He resists them. He encourages the meek. He beautifies them. He makes them look beautiful. Now, Psalm 149, verse 4. The Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll come back to Psalms. We'll see some more things here in a minute. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me tell you. Don't you get mad at me. But I'm going to tell you, ladies, you want to be beautiful to your husband? Don't fight him. That doesn't mean you don't have to show when he's wrong or explain when he's wrong, but you do not have to be rude. First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, and we'll see this thing applied uh, where we live. First Peter 3 verse 4, speaking to a woman who's married to a husband that is not obedient to the word of God. Now, he may be saved, he may not be saved. It doesn't say that he's lost. It just says he does not obey the word. But verse 1 says that they also, without using words, they, your, your husband may be won by the conversation of the wife, by the life of the wife, while they behold your chaste, your controlled, your restrained conversation coupled with fear. You don't fear your husband, but you do fear God. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning the plating, the fancy of the hair, the wearing of gold or putting on of fancy apparel, but let it be what you show off the hidden man of your heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament. Is an ornament a beautiful thing or an ugly thing? It's an ornament. It's a beautiful thing. Even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great prices, priceless, for after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trust in God, they adorn themselves with meekness and quietness, being the subjection to their own husband. Listen, an angry, loud, pushy woman is ugly both to the husband and to God. Amen. Now, no other church is going to tell you that. But if you want a blessings of God in your home, start meek. Because it replaces all the wrong attitudes. When you're meek, you've actually replaced anger, wrath, pushing, yelling, arguing. It replaces arrogance. It goes for both men and women. It replaces arrogance, pride, and the desire to be right. <laughs> Doesn't mean that you never say anything. 
or that you never respond in any way at all. You may have to face your enemy. You may have to face your your problem, say your peace. But you know what you do? You leave the the end result to God. You don't fix it. You don't push it. You don't make it. You say, I've said my peace. It'll work for marriages. It'll work for a bad boss. It'll work with bad neighbors. (laughs) Go back to Psalm 22. What else does it do? It satisfies you. You know, when you've been truly meek, you will not be defeated. Psalm 22 and verse 26. Evidently, David had to learn this because he writes a lot about it. Psalm 22 and verse 26. The meat shall eat and be what? Satisfied with whatever they have. They shall praise the Lord. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. They that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. That's cool. You know, God will just make you happy. If you just start saying, I'm leaving it to God, you'll be happy with whatever you got. Look at chapter 25 and verse 9. What else does meekness do for you? It makes you teachable. Psalm 25, 9. The meek will he, will God, guide in judgment and decisions, and the meek will he teach his way. Why is it most of us aren't learning anything in church? I know you can blame me. I know you can say, well, I don't understand the King James Bible. Listen, it's not your Bible that's the problem. It's not the teacher that's the problem. You know what it is? It's our attitude. Because the Bible just promised that if you come to God, if you come to church on a Sunday morning, not angry at the pastor, not angry at your wife or your kids or your husband, and just come in meekly, God will open up the universe to you. Amen. I know I have more understanding than all my teachers because I keep thy precepts. You know what a precept is? It's not just literal words. It's the truth. And if you come out of this Bible-believing church, you'll know more than a professor down at UCC. Amen. Amen. Not because of some great teacher, but because God taught you. Makes you teachable. Meekness does that. Meekness also gives the whole world to you. Psalm 37, 11. Psalm 37, 11. See, Jesus never says anything new. He just opens up their understanding of what's already in the Old Testament. He says this in Psalm 37, 12, uh, verse 37, 11. But the meek shall inherit the earth. So Jesus didn't just make that up. He quotes from a promise in the Old Testament. And shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Everything you do, outside of being meek, without that attitude, you will lose. Everything else you do, you may win an argument, but you'll lose your wife. You may win an argument, but you'll lose your kids. You may win your argument at work, and you'll lose your job, right? You get what I'm saying? But you learn how to be meek. You learn how to say what needs to be said, and then leave it. And get back to work, get back to loving, get back to serving, and not maybe not take it personal, but say, I leave it to you, God. Meekness wins. What does meekness look like? When you see somebody who's not protecting themselves, even though they're being abused, they're not fighting back when they're under attack, 
They're not mocking when they're being mocked. When they take abuse on the cheek, like Jesus says. That's what meekness looks like. When you're not, when you see somebody who's not promoting themselves at all. You know what Philippians 2, 7 says? Jesus made himself of. You know, a Muslim will tell you, Jesus never claimed to be God, which is a lie. He actually did. But he didn't go around saying, by the way, I'm God. He wasn't promoting himself saying, hey, guys, I want to show you how great I am. No, he didn't. He came low, and he just got lower and lower and lower to the point of being crucified. You know what meekness looks like? No promotion at all. No, no, I'm not, I'm not promoting myself, and we're not promoting ourselves. Doesn't worry about the outcome. You find somebody who's not worried about the outcome of their Bible-based decisions. Some people make decisions for career. Some people make decisions for moving. Some people make decisions for marriage. Some people make decisions for investments. That's all fine, let me tell you. Some of them you're going to be ashamed of. But whatever decisions you make that are based on the Bible, you'll never be ashamed of. You will, because you're not worried. If I choose to love my enemy, if I choose to pray for them that, that despitefully use me, if I choose to give to people who are never going to give anything back to me, you know what I'm doing? I'm leaving the outcome to God. So why, why in the world do you tithe? Why in the world do you give extra above that? Why in the world do you give so much time to the ministry? You, you're making other people not, not have you. You're over in this side and you're doing that and there are other people who could use you and all of the imbalance. I make a Bible-based decision and I leave the results to God. That's meekness, the goal of it. You know what? If you ever meet somebody that, that is meek, they won't look like themselves at all. They'll look like Jesus. Because that's what meekness looks like. Amen? And that's what I want to look like. Last point. How do we get it? Go to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Pastor, I'm already greatly meek. You never met a man meeker than me. <laughs> really? It's not possible to say that. <clears throat> James 3.13 says this, though. If you want to be meek, it says this. James 3.13, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of what? You know, if you get godly wisdom, where do you get godly wisdom? From the Word of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with listening to the wisdom of somebody who's older than you, but you better make sure they're godly. Because not everybody that's older than you is smarter than you. Amen? Right, uh, old man, Bill? Right, don't say. Anyway, you know, I was with, <laughs> I was with Martin, and it was Martin's birthday last week, and uh, Martin and I are joking about it. he's he's getting old, you know. Martin says, but that's why I keep Bill around. <laughs> I love you, Bill. Uh, let's see if you're meek after this. That's what we're going to find out. <laughs> Learn godly wisdom. Let God teach you while you're waiting in the valley, while you're defeated, while you're discouraged, man. Let God teach you. Meekness, wisely. Secondly, 
accept biblical correction. Hebrews, go back a few pages to Hebrews chapter 12 in verse 5. Hebrews 12, 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not. That's the key words. How often do I get upset when God's working on me? Despise not thou the chasten of the Lord, nor faint, no quit, when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. What's the point? Despise not means take it. Listen, if I'm supposed to trust God, I need to trust that when he's correcting me that he knows what he's doing and I don't get upset and I stay meek. How do I get meekness? God teaches me through getting me to humble myself when I'm in trouble when I'm being corrected. When pressure comes on me and I know it's because I've backslidden or I'm in the wrong place or whatever, and I say, Lord, you're right. That's where you learn meekness. The third one is when you respond to biblical, as as biblical uh, examples respond. Years ago, there were were these bands that everybody was buying and wearing on. It said, WWDJ. Ever hear that? What would Jesus do? Then somebody says, you know, that's not very smart because I'm not sure what would Jesus do, but I do know what Jesus did. So it ought to be WDJD. What did Jesus do? So I got a book full of examples of how to live meekly to apply to my situation and, and respond to my problem with biblical examples. And did you know the Holy Spirit produces meekness in us as we yield to Him and obey Him? Galatians chapter 5, back to the left. Galatians 5, <clears throat> it's one of the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, this is the result of the Holy Spirit being in charge of your life instead of you being in charge of your life. The fruit of the Spirit is always going to be love, joy, Peace, we're getting there, long-suffering, ooh, gentleness, goodness, faith, hello, meekness, and temperance, and against us there's no law. So the Holy Spirit can put that in you, say, I'm not very meek. Yeah, I know, that's why the Holy Spirit has to put it in us. As I yield to Him and let Him. As I even want it. That's why I say this last point. Do you know God will give you meekness? If you want it. Because God cannot and will not force meekness on someone who's not hungering for it. Say, why isn't my, hung, my, why isn't my husband meek? Because he doesn't want it. If he wanted it, God will give it to him. Amen? How meek is your attitude? Do you trust God when you're in a problem or under pressure? Don't protect yourself from all the attacks. Sometimes you just got to take it on the cheek and say, Lord, you take care of them. Stop worrying about yourself. Stop promoting yourself. Stop remembering all the things about you. Just make biblical decisions, react biblically, and leave the end to God, and that's meekness. Remembering that God will fight for you. You know, when Israel was, was at the Red Sea, and that was a sea, by the way. It was one a little bitty creek to cross over. 
the Egyptian army coming up behind them. The Israelites panicked. They started running around like chickens with their head cut off. They were freaking out. They knew they were doomed. Everything's over. And Moses went to God and says, God, what are we going to do? And God says, shut up. I will fight for you and you will hold your peace. And then God put a wall of fire between uh, the Pharaoh's army and Israel. And then God moved in. And with the breath of his nostril, I can't even move paper with that nostril. He split the Red Sea. Is that good enough for you, Moses and Israel? And if he can do that with just the breath of his nostril, what can he do when he really wants to fight? Remember, meekness is strength under God's control while under pressure. So hold back and let God deal with your enemy or your problem. And then listen, folks, there may be some of the people in this room who are not interested in this at all. And there's only one reason. Because you've never been born again. This is what we got born into. A desire to allow ourselves to take last place. A desire to let God show himself mighty. A, a desire to live differently, live higher than this world. And if that's your desire, praise God. But if it's not, fear God. Because without being saved, if you're not born again, you will never see any of this in your life and you'll definitely not see it in the future. Because you must be born again. Let's bow. Please stand with me and bow your heads for a moment. Most of our lives, we try to find our place, Father. We try to try to prove ourselves. We try to develop ourselves so we can say, this is what I did. Yes, that's okay. But we do it to the defeat and the demise of others. And we definitely do it completely without you. And these come at a time where as grown adults, grown teenagers, we realize, you know what, I'm always going to have enemies. But instead of me fighting them, and I'm always going to have sinful pressures, Satanic attacks, but instead of me fighting them, Lord, I need you to fight them for me. And I want to have the right attitude so that you are free to fight my battles. I want to have the right response so that people see Jesus instead of an angry man, instead of an angry woman, instead of a fierce person. I want them to see Christ. So, Lord, as we go through these eight attitudes... I can say, ouch. Especially being an American. It takes a lot of work to convince me to be meek. But I'm glad you have. I just want to be meek now, because blessed are the meek. I don't want to leave it for later. I want to start doing it now. So please help that to be our hunger and our desire this morning that we would have a different attitude so that we win. In Jesus' name, amen.